Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick. Thanks for joining me for this special episode exploring Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing and reconciliation. For this episode, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina with my guest, Reverend Joseph Darby. Pastor Darby has been ministering at AME churches in South Carolina for over 40 years. Pastor Darby says Mother Emmanuel is the mother of African Methodism in the Southeast United States. And in our wide-ranging conversation this hour, we discuss what has and has not changed there since the attack and the role of the AME community in the aftermath. And you'll hear us take a tour of Nichols Chapel AME in Charleston, where we spoke, and where Pastor Darby is senior minister. Here's our conversation. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Reverend Darby joins me now at Nichols Chapel AME. Thank you so much for hosting us here, Reverend. Glad to have you. Welcome. You have, as we heard, a background in social work, including over a decade as a probation counselor. Did that stand you in good stead for your life as a minister? I think it did. Um, 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 I believe that everyone who goes into ministry needs to have some real-world experience dealing with people and dealing with people's concerns. I think that makes you a more effective and more empathetic pastor when it comes to not just starting out in the church being in kind of an ivory tower. It it helps you to identify with those that you're working with in the pews as well as in the community. What kind of skills from your life as a counselor have you brought with you to your church leadership? Uh, The ability to actively listen, uh, the ability to hopefully effectively communicate a great deal of patience and understanding that people come in all shapes, sizes, colors, and genders, uh, that we need to have an air of mutual respect for one another. All of those things, I think, are helpful to ministry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And being a fourth-generation minister, did you always know that this was the path for you? Yes and no. Um, I am a fourth-generation minister, not only in the church, but in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That includes two uncles, granduncle, great-grandfather. And so I had heard early on that I'm going to be a minister, and I knew too many ministers. I didn't think that was a lifestyle that was appealing to me, but God has a sense of humor, and here I am. Why didn't you think it was appealing at first? Uh, The church can sometimes, if you're not careful, you run into people who are extremely staid, very holy, uh, very 
for lack of a better word, sanctimonious and uh, who live a very, not ascetic, but a very careful lifestyle. And I've always been very fond of being myself. How long have you been a, a church leader for now? Uh, I've been in ministry for 46 years. Wow. Yeah. So that is experience right there. So mm. what does it take to lead today in these times? <laughs> a great deal of patience, number one. Um, I think a great deal of awareness of what's going on in the world around us. I think that there's a need for clergy of all faiths to be not just pragmatic, but to be prophetic, to be able to speak truth to power, uh, to not be so concerned about image, appearance, or status, that you cannot uh, tell the truth and that you cannot call people into account, I think. The church is about improving the quality of life of all people, whether they are parishioners or not. And I think that's a major quality, that ability to actually be what I didn't think I could be and be a minister, be myself. You must feel pressure, though, sometimes to to stay quiet about things that you care about, or is that not something that bothers you? Doesn't bother me one bit. <laughs> I had two uncles who were active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Um, I'm a part of one of the few denominations that came into being not out of theological concerns, but out of social concerns, and particularly racism in the in what was then the Methodist Episcopal Church in the 1700s. So uh, being hopefully prophetic is part and parcel of what I believe the historically black church does and is called to do. We're here, obviously, uh, Buffalo, what's next, WBFO, we're here because we want to find out what was mm -hmm. next for Charleston in the wake of the massacre in June 2015 yeah. at Mother Emanuel Church, a racist mm -hmm. attack um, that was shockingly and horrifyingly similar to the attack that happened in Buffalo mm -hmm. last May. Um, and as mm -hmm. far as you're comfortable, mm -hmm. can you take me back to some of your like presiding memories of the, the weeks and months following the attack at Mother Emanuel? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I start really with the lead up to Mother Emanuel. What happened at Mother Emanuel came after a police shooting in North Charleston, Walter Scott. Mm -hmm. They'd make national news as well. And just to remind people, if they can't recall, Walter Scott mm -hmm. was a black man who was shot and killed, murdered by a white police officer mm -hmm. in April 2015. My last memory of Clemente Pinckney, um, who considered me, I'm honored to say, to be something of a mentor, one of his mentors, uh, was the very effective job he did in presiding over the service for that. And um, he was one of the people that was killed in the attack at Mother Emanuel. He was the pastor of Mother Emanuel. Yeah. And um, at the time that it happened, I was presiding elder, which is like middle management in the AME Church, uh, in the Buford District, south of Charleston. And I had just come from a meeting on that district and got a call from one of my pastors to say that she had heard uh, from a relative in the police department that there had been a shooting at Mother Emanuel. And so my first instinct was to pick up the phone and call Clemente to say, you know, if there's anything I can do, any backup, whatever. And I didn't get an answer. And I called again and didn't get an answer. And his voicemail was full. And that was totally unlike Clemente. And I called a friend in the police department who said, yeah, there's been a shooting, and pastor is one of those who was killed. And it 
was shocking. So uh, my major role back then initially was to interact with the media. Um, the presiding elder of the Edisto district, Novell Goff, uh, that was one of his churches. So he immediately stepped into the pastoral counseling role and the comforting role. And I fielded calls, went on everybody's news channel and did that for about a week or so. And it was turmoil in Charleston. Um, that turmoil has not been effectively represented. Uh, we did a lot, particularly the men of the AME Church in the Low Country, uh, to really keep a lid on things, to make it plain that uh, we were grieving, that we were shocked, that we were outraged, but that this was something that was going to be handled with the dignity of the church. And we tried to handle that with the dignity of the church. Mm. So obviously there was a, an awful lot of anger bubbling under that was oh, managed. Extreme anger. And, and we had some folks who uh, tend to swoop down whenever there was a tragedy, and they swooped down on Charleston. And, but we, were, we managed to keep things at least civil, I guess, as civil as it could be when you're talking about nine dead folks, um, mm. three, four of whom I knew very well. and. So it was a very difficult time in Charleston. And I, I commend then Mayor Riley, I commend then Police Chief Greg Mullen uh, for coming out on top and saying this is a racist act. And that went a long ways towards focusing the city and I think focusing the, the, the nation. Um, the initial reports on Fox News, if I can say Fox News, was that, oh my goodness, there's been an attack on religion and the more it came out, and the more you saw pictures of Dylan Roof, the killer Confederate <laughs> flags, and basically a manifesto that he wanted to kill as many black people as possible and start a race war, then it became undeniable of what had happened. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next and my conversation from Charleston with Reverend Joseph Darby. This episode is part of WBFO's special programming in the week leading to the one-year anniversary of 514, Buffalo What's Next went to Charleston, South Carolina, to explore the parallels between two cities that have both suffered racist massacres. I'm speaking with Reverend Joseph Darby, who has been ministering at AME churches in the state for over 40 years. Pastor Darby took me on a tour of Nichols Chapel AME where we spoke and where he is the senior minister. So we're going through these doors right here. Going through these doors, this will lead you to the present sanctuary. And we're mid-sized as AME churches go in Charleston. We're not one of the biggies like Sanctuary at Mother Emanuel or Morris Brown or Mount Zion or Greater St. Luke, which is interesting because it used to be a synagogue before it was an AME church. And this is present sanctuary. Okay, so we're stepping inside now. We've got a lovely mural there behind. There's a feature in a lot of black churches in Charleston. There used to be a little old lady. I went to college with her son at South Carolina State. And she just passed two or three years ago, and up until the end when she was in her 90s, she was still doing murals. Oh, so wow. So did how long has this one been here? Uh, this one has been here since the 90s. That's when they 
completed this sanctuary. One of the congregations that's grown in strength is when they had a vision to realize that this side of town at the time that it was first started was growing. And so they decided to initiate and to grow a new congregation. And that's what you got in Nichols Chapel. It was probably one of the first churches reasonably major pulpits, uh, significant pulpits, I guess is the better word, to actually have a woman pastor, Carol Priester, uh, pastor this church in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when women in large churches were still kind of rare for the AME church. But it's, this is who we are, this is where we are. And this is where it all happens. This is where it all happens. And we have fun in here on Sundays. We have fun in here on Sundays. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next and my conversation from Charleston with Reverend Joseph Darby. As part of WBFO's special programming in the week leading to the one-year anniversary of 514, Buffalo What's Next visited Charleston, South Carolina to find out what was next for their city in the eight years since the racist massacre at Mother Emmanuel AME Church. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick and my guest, Pastor Joseph Darby and I, are speaking about racism, the South, and if there's anything Buffalo can take away from his experiences in the eight years since the attack at Mother Emanuel. I mean, that must have t- taken a great toll on you to, to be the person who was the point of contact for the media. What was that like? Um, that was interesting. Um, I talked to everybody from... NBC to Al Jazeera in the space of a week. Uh, the area around Mother Emanuel became a press area, and um, there was a lot of coverage, a uh, lot of making sure that the message was consistent um, and making sure that the message came out from an AME church perspective. Uh, talk to some of everybody, except Fox. I don't go on Fox um, other than them. Um, it was a matter of talking to any number of people. And when you do that, you're kind of running on some combination of what Christians call Holy Spirit and just automatic. Mm. And so we got through it. We'll get on to a little bit about what you really feel has or mm. has not changed mm. since. From an outsider perspective across mm. the U.S. and certainly across the world, I was watching from the U.K. at that mm. time, mm-hmm. something that the narrative, I would say, that was taken on um, about something that was changed was the fact that the Confederate flag Mm -hmm. was removed from the state house in Mm -hmm. in Columbia here in South Carolina. It was removed on July 10th, so around 22, 23 days Mm -hmm. after that attack. Can you just tell me Mm -hmm. a little bit about your involvement in that process and what Mm -hmm. happened? Well, it was, the the whole aftermath was interesting. the initial fear was apparently in some quarters that black folk would rise up, that black folk would riot, and that Charleston would be burning. And when that didn't happen, and especially when uh, some of the families 
uh, that were affected. Not all of them uh, forgave the killer. Um, it was it went from oh my goodness, what are the black people going to do now? To oh my goodness, they're not mad at us. We have to try to make amends. And so there was a great outpouring, and I believe in the hearts of those who uh, did that outpouring, a great deal of sincerity and wanting to make things better and somehow wanting to make things right. Uh, that interestingly extended to our then governor, Nikki Haley, uh, because Governor Haley prior to that had said that she didn't see a need to disturb the flag, that um, that was not an issue that she cared to touch. And I think after she interacted with some of the families, after she had a chance to kind of take uh, a close look at both the grief and the magnanimity of those families, uh, that it sincerely changed her. And she started to work uh, not only to make things better, uh, but to get the flag off the state house grounds, uh, it, where it was supposed to have been as a final solution. Uh, my role in that at that point was basically minimal. Um, I had been very active in that battle when the flag initially was moved from the Capitol Dome in Columbia, from the legislative chambers uh, to the front, which was an, not a final solution. Uh, but um, at that point, I kind of observed that part and, yeah. and didn't really take an active role in getting it off the grounds entirely. So just for context, the flag uh, was only raised, I believe, at the State House around 1962, so That's at the right. height of the Civil Rights Movement. Exactly. Then around 2000 mm -hmm. uh, was the, the march to remove it, but it got removed from the dome, as you said, to a flagpole just in front of the State House. Right. So it was still there oh, um, yeah. right up until July 10th, mm -hmm. 2015. Yeah. Oh, there were, uh, the whole saga is interesting, to say the least. Uh, calls for the flag's removal really began in 1973-74 when the first uh, black legislators were elected to the House of Representatives. They immediately started calling for the flag to come down. They were immediately told uh, that's not going to happen. It picked up steam in the late mid to late 90s uh, when then Attorney General Travis Medlock pointed out that the flag was there not as a matter of law but as a continuing resolution and resolutions do not carry the power of law. And so he started taking steps, and those who loved the flag were entrenched and started to dig in their heels. There was a period of protest in the late 90s leading up to the 2000 march. And in each of those occasions, whenever somebody would come to town, uh, National NAACP, Congress of National Black Churches would meet in Columbia, uh, we would make a point of marching to the State House and saying, we believe this flag comes, should come down. We represent X number of dollars in tourism impact by being here. And that led to the economic sanctions that brought it from the top of the State House to the and the legislative chambers to the front of the State House. Uh, as a part of that relocation, the legislature also passed something called the Heritage Act. It's mm -hmm. been replicated in a number of states that says you have to have a supermajority in both houses of the legislature in order to disturb any artifact of war, any statue of a historical nature. And so it was nothing short of revolutionary uh, for the flag to come down that quick. And, you know, those of us who have been involved in the flag thought that 
it was both ironic and bittersweet and a little bit outrageous that all that it took to get the flag off the grounds was nine dead black folks. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next and my conversation from Charleston with Reverend Joseph Darby. This episode is part of WBFO's special programming in the week leading to the one-year anniversary of 514. Buffalo What's Next went to Charleston, South Carolina, to explore the parallels between two cities that have both suffered racist massacres. I'm speaking with Reverend Joseph Darby, who has been ministering at AME churches in the state for over 40 years. Pastor Darby took me on a tour of Nichols Chapel AME where we spoke and where he is the senior minister. When you preach, Mm -hmm. do you feel a change in yourself? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I laugh about the fact that when when I finally gave in and said, yeah, I'll preach, I told my uncles, look, I'm going to do this. I I feel I'm going to stop fighting this. But don't expect me to do all of that hollering like you guys do, because that ain't me. And now I can holler with the best of them, <laughs> I guess. And it's something that gets into your bones, so to speak. And so there's, there, there's a change in me. Hopefully that's called the Holy Spirit, um, because it enables me to do, uh, empowers me, spurs me to do what I would not normally be doing. So... Is it when you step up to the altar or is it when you begin to talk that you feel that change? When you begin to talk, when you really get into the rhythm of it. And it's a black church, so you still have the West African tradition when you're preaching of call and response where the clergy person will say, and if the people like it, hopefully they'll say amen or preach or whatever. And that's like pouring fuel on the homiletic fire. you, You get into it. You get into it. You're always getting that feedback. Yeah, you're always getting that feedback. And if you don't get that feedback, you get very, very worried about the quality of your preaching or the quality of your sermon. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick, and this episode is part of our special programming as we near the one-year anniversary of the Tops Massacre. I was part of the WBFO team that visited Charleston, South Carolina, to examine what has and hasn't changed there since the racist attack at Mother Emanuel AME Church in 2015. Is there anything we in Buffalo can take away from Charleston's experiences in the eight years since the attack there? My guest is the Reverend Joseph Darby, Senior Minister at Nichols Chapel AME in Charleston, which is where this conversation took place. I mean, you hearing you speak and, and calling it revolutionary, mm-hmm. it was obviously extremely important that that flag was understood, you know? Oh, yeah. understand yeah. People understand what it stands for. Exactly. Um, but as you say, you must have felt dreadful that it took, yeah, nine people yeah, to be killed. nine people to be killed. It's because there was such a, 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 a traditional fervor for that flag. The flag was seen 
not as just a relic, not just a fond reminiscence by those who were fond of it, but it was a statement of policy. It went up at the centennial of the Civil War's beginning, roughly, but it also went up, as you said, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, and that happened not just in South Carolina, but all over the South, to say, uh, we're in charge and don't you forget it, and we are not going to go off into that good night very easily. And so when you move that symbol, then that made a difference. And, and it, it, was, it was insulting. It could be funny at times. It, it was amusing listening to people from the Sons of Confederate Veterans League of the South. Um, who In what are, way? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a little insulting and a little funny because they were telling black folk, you know, slavery was a long time ago. You need to forget all about this. And to say, yeah, but one of your objects of adoration is a flag from 100 years ago from a war that you lost, but you don't want to take it down. That says a lot about the flag as a statement of policy. Well, how, how did it feel to you l mm -hmm. looking at that flag on the State House when you were in Columbia? Um, it was one of those things that a lot of black folk tried their best to simply ignore. It was there. Uh, taking it down was going to be a monumental task. We knew that before we went into really actively trying to get the flag down. So uh, it was something you grudgingly lived with. And having grown up in South Carolina, South Carolina is uh, a Confederate museum in itself, mm. so to speak. Um, but that had folk to say, uh, doing the flag battle, because I talked to a lot of Sons of Confederate veterans, and they said, you want to destroy every bit of our history. And I said, to destroy your history, we'd have to just clear-cut the state, tear everything down, and rebuild it, because uh, Confederate history is interwoven into South Carolina. If you go to the State House grounds, there's a monument to Marion Sims, uh, who's considered to be a father of gynecology, who uh, became a father of gynecology by practicing on slave women without anesthetic. Um, you've got uh, Benjamin Tillman, Pitchfork Ben, they called him, who eradicated Reconstruction in South Carolina and did so in a very bloody way. Uh, you've got a United Daughters of the Confederacy monument. You've got Confederate General Wade Hampton. So you, you can't eradicate Southern history. You can contextualize some of it. You can eradicate some of the more egregious pieces of it. But um, it was one of those things that you lived with coming up in South Carolina. You just spoke of, about a lot of the monuments or historical sites mm -hmm. here in Charleston, one of which was a, a statue of a man called John C. Calhoun. Oh, yes. Uh, and just for context for our listeners, he was a staunch defender of slavery. Mm -hmm. He called slavery, quote, a positive good. Mm -hmm. uh, he died about 15 years before the Civil War started. Right. Um, but a statue uh, in his honor mm -hmm. has been in a place called Marion Square mm -hmm. um, for a very long time. It was, it was uh, put up in about 1887 and mm -hmm. removed in June 2020. Mm -hmm. And it was on this ridiculously high <laughs> plinth, mm -hmm. right? Right in the middle of this Marion right. Square. Right. Um, and it was it was put up to to commemorate, mm -hmm. if you like, or Im, uh, make immortal this man John C. Calhoun. Mm -hmm. But it has a 
more interesting history than that one of dissent and black resistance. Exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, Calhoun was, um, in terms of American history, he was a statesman, former vice president, uh, senator. Um, He was illustrious as far as government goes. He was also an adamant defender of slavery. As you said, he called it a positive good. He was a slaveholder. A lot of what he did as a senator kind of laid the framework years earlier for the Civil War when it finally broke out. And he was adored for that. Uh, His statue, his original statue, uh, was one of those that was erected in the 1880s uh, when the South had started to recover from its economic damage from the Civil War when the uh, federal troops had been pulled out, Reconstruction was collapsing, and just as the flag went up in the 60s, 1962, as a statement of policy, all of those statues across the South uh, went up in the 1880s to say, we are back, and you might not be slaves again, but you're daggum sure close to being slaves. It's actually the second statue that's on the pedestal. It's on the pedestal because the first statue, depending upon what history you read, uh, uh, staid Southern history says that they did not think that it was aesthetically correct, and that it seemed to have his head at an odd angle and stuff like that. Uh, the more accurate history, black history, is that his head was at an odd angle because black folk kept knocking the head off the statue, um, kept defacing the statue. And so they crafted a new statue and they put it so high nobody could reach it. And so mm. that's why he stood presiding over Marion Square, only a block away from Mother Emanuel AME Church. Mm. And that was removed in June 2020, obviously mm-hmm. after the murder of George Floyd. Right. Um, but as you said, it. Do you feel that it was just because of the murder of George Floyd that it was removed, or do you do you feel that the history of black resistance paved the way? I think the history of black resistance paved the way. I mean, you could not be... It was as powerful a symbol of racism as the Confederate flag. Uh, Marion Square is adjacent to what used to be the campus of the Citadel, South Carolina's military college. Uh, The Citadel grew out of a need following the Denmark V.C. Slave Rebellion in 1822. Uh, When they beat that back, they created a South Carolina militia in case there were other slave uprisings. That militia kind of evolved into the Citadel, and it was in the heart of town, not far from the black community, to make sure that if there were any more rebellion, it could be dealt with by armed young men immediately. And so it's, it's no accident that it was adjacent to the Citadel. The only way that it came down was that uh, it was crafted and owned by, well, first United Daughters of Confederacy, then by a group called the Washington Light Infantry. And they made the mistake of deeding that piece of land where it stood to the city of Charleston. And so that meant Charleston could do what Charleston wanted to do with it. And when our present mayor, John Tecklenburg, became mayor, uh, John led the effort to have Calhoun's statue removed. and uh, Not just removed, but if you ride by there today, you'd never know there was a statue there. They, they removed every shred, statue, pedestal, the whole thing. So, um, as you said, they didn't have to go through that majority, super majority right. vote of the Heritage Act because right. of who owned the land. Right, exactly. 
but there are still statues around and because they are on land um, that is state land, state land that has to win a super majority in the state assembly to be removed yeah is there any kind of push f- for the removal of any of these monuments at the minute or is the focus elsewhere and if so why i don't think there's an immediate push as much so as there was with calhoun and the flag for a couple of reasons one is the sheer number of monuments um to the confederacy that um if you focus on one, you'd have to focus on all. Um, they're all over the place. And so I think the greater effort now is to try to change the calculus in the legislature uh, to elect enough people to actually do away with the Heritage Act and give municipalities the ability to remove statues within their particular municipality without as much difficulty. Mm-hmm. And yet, I, I know I wanted to make it clear that um, you know it took the momentum, and correct me if I'm, I'm mm-hmm. wrong here in this interpretation, it seems to me that the momentum for the removal of that Calhoun statue mm-hmm. was because George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. Um, yet another black body, it yeah. seemed to, to take to get this momentum. Yeah. It, 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 it always seems to be in reaction to the egregious lynching murder of black folk uh, for that to happen, to for, for emotions to get to the point where people are amenable to doing that kind of thing. And that says something about America. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next and my conversation from Charleston with Reverend Joseph Darby. This episode is part of WBFO's special programming in the week leading to the one-year anniversary of 514. Buffalo What's Next went to Charleston, South Carolina, to explore the parallels between two cities that have both suffered racist massacres. I'm speaking with Reverend Joseph Darby, who has been ministering at AME churches in the state for over 40 years. Pastor Darby took me on a tour of Nichols Chapel AME where we spoke and where he is the senior minister. And since since uh, what happened at Mother Emmanuel, has there been a step up in security in this church? Because that was something that was spoken about in the press quite a lot. Yeah, uh, we have stepped all churches have stepped up uh we walk a fine line because you don't want to i don't want to racially profile you know so if some young white person comes in we can't say you can't come in here that that that's totally unchristian but we have people strategically placed so that if there is a disturbance, it can be immediately addressed. Sorry if this is blunt, but when you say you have people strategically placed, you mean people armed? Yes, people armed um, who have, you know, members of the congregation who have law enforcement experience and who are able to size people up. So, you know, if, without saying too much, if somebody comes and there is, a reason for concern, and we don't, you know, blow the whistles and call 991, but uh, they will have someone sitting within a pew's distance of where they are. And, you know, if, so that if they get up or if they make an, a, a, a threatening move, then there'll be somebody there to deal with that threat. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. 
To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next and my conversation from Charleston with Reverend Joseph Darby. As part of WBFO's special programming in the week leading to the one-year anniversary of 514, Buffalo What's Next visited Charleston, South Carolina, to find out what was next for their city in the eight years since the racist massacre at Mother Emmanuel AME Church. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick, and my guest, Pastor Joseph Darby and I, are speaking about racism, the South, and if there's anything Buffalo can take away from his experiences in the eight years since the attack at Mother Emanuel. Let's move on. Well, let's let's take that and say, well, then what do you think has changed since mm. the racist massacre at Mother Emanuel? Well, some things have changed. Uh, there is a group that grew out of that. Some very well-meaning people have uh, developed what they call the South Carolina Forum. Uh, it's interracial. Uh, they every year hold a mass assembly kind of learning opportunity, kind of like a TED Talk sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been some linkages because of that. Uh, the Charleston Area Justice Ministry uh, grew after that. Well, it grew parallel to that. It, it really began before the manual event. And, and can you just explain what the Charleston Area Justice Ministry is? Yeah. It is a coalition of faith, houses of faith, uh, primarily churches, a couple of synagogues, mosques, uh, some well-meaning people, I think some students at the College of Charleston, one of their organizations that every year will pick out uh, an issue that they believe needs to be changed from policing to uh, dealing with school suspensions to affordable housing to environmental racism and deal with it. And it started to take its present shape after Mother Emanuel. At first it was kind of general and then it shifted to folks realizing we've been dealing with racism all along and we really didn't think about it until now, and it's a fairly extraordinary group, about 40 member bodies. Everybody came together, clergy and eventually lay, and it's made an effective difference uh, in the Lowcountry. country. In, in the 2015 and 2016 cycle, they chose for their campaign mm -hmm. um, to have a look at racial equity, equity in policing. Right. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned before, mm. Walter Scott was killed by a police officer in North Charleston in right. 2015, just before the shooting at Mother Emanuel. Mm -hmm. Does that bring you hope that <laughs> there was some kind of move to, to address some of these problems of racism? I think that's a combination of hopeful goodwill and gentle intimidation, if you would. Uh, justice ministry, concludes every year cycle with a large group meeting called Nehemiah Action that brings a couple of thousand folks together and uh, invites local elected officials to say, this is what we think should happen, what do you think? And 2,000 voters assembled in one place can have an impact. And so that's been the difference. I think the policing issue is evidence of that. When we first brought that up, uh, 
Mayor Riley kind of slow vaulted Mayor Tecklenburg was adamantly opposed to the idea of doing a racial justice audit. But we kept pushing and kept pushing. And the last time he ran for office, he talked about how wonderful it was to work with the Justice Ministry to make sure we had equitable policing in the low country. And so, you know, the South uh, sometimes works by, I think, tacit kindness, but more often works by pressure and coercion. Power does not concede power without a demand. And I think that's still true, especially when it comes to matters of race. Mm. And you have, maybe perhaps not in a, a state house type of way, but you do have, um, if not power, certainly influence in your mm. role. Got and a big mouth, yeah. <laughs> and um, so, so when it came to that deciding of um, the, the racial equity and policing to be the focus, mm. how much was that a conscious decision? Did you talk to other churches? I've heard from a couple mm. of people that that is what happened. It was the first time that you said to each other, let's try to come together on this issue. Is oh, that yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, when I talk about justice ministry, I say that's a product of God's grace, if there is such a thing, and I believe there is, uh, because there's a group out of Florida that sets up similar ministries from city to city. When they came to Charleston, um, and one of our AME bishops told them, see Darby, and when the guy outlined how it worked, I said there is no way that's going to work in Charleston. The churches do not communicate uh, across denominational lines, very much less across lines of race. And he said, well, try it, get some other, and I called some colleagues, black and white. And we had a good laugh about what the guy wanted to do, and we all said, there's no way that's going to happen in Charleston. Um, 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 Charleston Charleston runs on what I call raging politeness. Uh, we uh, talk a very good game, but we sometimes don't want to talk about the rougher edges of that game. And, and, and so we're ragingly polite about keeping that out of the conversation. Um, Justice Minister managed to break some of that veneer of raging politeness and have some people who otherwise would not come to the table come to the table, find out that they had commonalities. And so, yeah, to that end, I was the person they first approached. And the person who told him that what's working well now would not work in Charleston. But you happy I'm, to be proved wrong? I am very happy to be proved wrong. Well, on that subject of what's changed mm. since the uh, the Charleston Area Justice Ministries being something positive, is there anything mm. else that comes to mind? The city of Charleston has um, done a formal apology for slavery, uh, which generated about as much fear as the Confederate as uh, the Calhoun statue in some quarters because there was the why do we need to do this? This is, doesn't mean anything. None of my ancestors owned slaves uh, countered by, well, if it doesn't matter, let's just do it unless there's some reason you really don't want to do it. And so they got that through. Um, <laughs> Joe Riley's pet project as mayor was the International African American Museum, which will finally be opening in a few months. Um, that's been a positive and hopefully will be a positive and not just be attended by black folk and progressive white folk. And that's due to open in June. Yeah, it's scheduled for June now. Um, there have been some, some, some actions like that. I know uh, one of the more telling, when they were expanding the Gilead Center, which is like the large entertainment venue in Charleston, mm -hmm. 
they realized when they started digging that it was a burial ground for slaves and free blacks from the 1700s. At one time in Charleston, they would have just plowed through that. Um, this time they stopped, construction stopped. They took the time to exhume what bodies they could to do DNA tracking on them, to rebury them with dignity. And there's going to be a marker put there, a very nice marker, um, to indicate that. So Charleston is more racially sensitive, I think, in some ways than it used to be. That's the good news, you know. Along with the good news, there's other news. So um, what hasn't changed? Uh, Charleston still has, it doesn't have as much of a patrician veneer as it used to have. Not, not quite as much of an overt Old South, but it's still a South that needs to evolve. Uh, when I started pastoring Mars Brown, I had perhaps a quarter of the congregation within walking distance of the church, downtown, heart of Charleston. Uh, today, I would venture to say that you would have to go two, three miles at a minimum to find black families um, on the peninsula, and those are disappearing because of gentrification. And gentrification drives up property values, drives up rents, and so the black population has shrunk. At one time, Charleston was, if not majority black, close to majority black city. I think the percentage now is about 80, 20 white black. The city has changed. It's become more and more touristy as well. And you have to strike a balance when you're talking touristy. Uh, the plantations, to the chagrin of some of those who come looking for the Scarlet O'Hara story, the plantations now are quite frank about their history and how they are actually almost work camps uh, for the enslaved mm. who enriched others. Charleston is more frank about that, but you still got this uh, Southern gentility. You've also got uh, a tendency towards what I call black mitigation. Um, if they want to do something downtown, uh, they will try to find some way uh, to say we're going to do the minimal thing that we can do for the black community to make this palatable. So um, a big development and then, and then oh, but we're going to crumbs. make sure that the it, we're recruiting X amount of African-American people. Or, you mean it's kind of like ticking a box and window dressing? Yeah, a good example is the Ravnell Bridge, the new bridge. Um, it okay. replaced a bridge that you, you developed a religious relationship with God if you went across the old bridge because you, you hoped you would make it, so it definitely oh. needed to be replaced. <laughs> but on the Mount Pleasant side, the very white, very affluent side, the footprint of the new bridge is literally within about a couple of blocks, quarter mile of where the old bridge was, and it went on land that had nothing on it. On the Charleston side, the footprint is some distance away, and it decimated a black community. But in the process of decimating, Department of Transportation gave some black kids scholarships and summer internships. And that was the mitigation, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, we're in the midst now of a battle over body of water called Gadsden Creek. Yeah. And they are talking about um, what they can do to do scholarships and, and some other nice things for the black community while they pull out a big chunk of the traditional heart of the community. And so Charleston still tends to do that and still tends to develop 
when they want to develop. If you go to the area that's uh, contiguous to the African-American Museum, and really that area too, uh, prior to Hurricane Hugo, that was a public housing project, Ansonboro Homes, and huge project. And after Hugo, they said the groundwater was too contaminated to ever do anything again. But they managed 20 years later to clean it up, put in condos, put in office buildings, put in aquarium, uh, putting in the museum. Yeah. And so Charleston does what it wants to do, uh, but with minimal benefits sometimes to the black community. So, so, so you're thinking that the, there's been the symbolic gesture, for example, the apology for slavery, again, important, yeah. but is there much money policy action yeah. actually happening? There, there, there's not that much money policy actually happening. In the wake of obviously what happened at Mother Emanuel and obviously what happened with us in, in May right. um, at the, the top supermarket. Right. Do you have some lessons that you think Charleston has learned or you've learned that would, would help us? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, opportunity comes out of adversity uh, sometimes. And I think in the wake of the top shooting, uh, which was horrible uh, to see and to hear about, uh, there's an opportunity, uh, hopefully, for communities to talk because uh, I know very little about Buffalo, but I do know that Buffalo has its own racial issues. I know it has its own black side of town. Absolutely. Um, and you know, probably the same can be said if you cross the border and go into Ontario. This is an opportunity to do a couple of things. One of those is to create new linkages for people who have not traditionally talked with each other, to sit down and talk with each other, not to talk at each other, but to talk with each other, to really engage in some a active listening, uh, even those who are perfectly certain that they're on the right side of history and, and the right side of cultural issues, to listen to folk uh, that they might not necessarily listen to otherwise, and to build a level of respect uh, for those folks. And, and if you do that in the wake of that, there'll be some growth. You'll get an appreciation, I think, uh, for, the, for the cultural depth of the African-American community, for the intellectual depth of the African-American community. And out of that, hopefully, will come one of the things that I've seen in Charleston, more of a respect for the idea that black folk are not simply quaint and slightly different, um, but that are people with the same concerns, the same cares, the same strengths, the same fears. Uh, and, and, and that makes a difference. Um, I've done work, and I'm not, I'm not bashing liberal people here, but, you know, one of the very refreshing things about flat-out racists is they will act like flat-out racists, and you know this is somebody to avoid at all costs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I've, I've done things. I, I did a workshop at CDC once in Atlanta, and I told them if you're going to work with the black church, the worst thing you can do is swoop into the church and say, hello, uh, we've been in your community, we've looked around, uh, we see the need, we figured out what's needed, and we figured out the solution. All you need to do is to let us do it. White and, savior. Yeah, and when that happens, I usually will tell folks, thank you so much. And I never see them again because I never call them back. You know, if you want to <laughs> know what's going on, ask the people in the community. Don't, don't, don't create, you know. And it's one of the good things about Gaston Creek. They are learning 
mm-hmm. uh, friends of Gadsden Creek. We started out predominantly white. They're learning if you want the residents to participate. A, you can't call a meeting on a Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock because people are working. B, you cannot expect that they will be as verbally confrontational as you are because many of them are afraid that if they are, they'll lose their jobs. And so when you start really to talk to, talk with, and not talk at people, then it opens the door for new linkages, and that can be refreshing. And I hope that happens in Buffalo and in Ontario as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, Just general hope for America. I I don't think that we are as barbaric as we seem to be. I think that uh, recent political times and recent lunatic president um, stirred up emotions that had long been buried. Uh, you know, uh, people say, oh, what has happened to America? They've lost their way. They didn't lose their way. Uh, when you give permission for the dregs of society to come out and be themselves, then they will oblige you. I think that if we can get back to a country where the great majority of people respect each other, might not agree, but respect each other, then we can have constructive conversations. We can uh, vote not on the basis of fear, but on the basis of public policy. Both parties can regain the interest in making policy and and not just staking out a position and having to own the opposition. And if we can get back to that, then we can get back on the road to trying to be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice, not for some, but for all. Well, Reverend Joseph Darby, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute honour to be able to interview you. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick. Pastor Darby took me on a tour of Nichols Chapel AME in Charleston, where we spoke and where he is the senior minister. Pastor Darby has been ministering at AME churches in South Carolina for over 40 years. And as a fourth generation minister, he was surrounded by relatives in the church. Like I said, you've been you've been doing this for a really long time, oh, yeah. always going, always fighting for something. Do you feel tired? Not at all. Not at all. I've actually slowed down, I think, a little bit over the years. Um, um, and you, you learn to pace yourself. If you like what you're doing, then it gets to be something that grows on you. And I like what I do. So, so you know, and I, I find it to be rewarding, you know, that I can... Years have passed. I was laughing uh, yesterday. Jim Clive. Jim is a member of um, Mars Brown, so I used to be Clive's pastor. And we were talking about how years have passed. And I said, you know, 20, 30 years ago, my colleagues in ministry and I would be talking about what AME Church was coming up and what the possibilities were for promotion. Now we're more like, what year do you retire? Yeah, I've got how many? Yeah, two years, three years, whatever. Yeah, so. <laughs> So, yeah, we're slowing down, but most of us still like what we do, and, and it makes a difference. It, I think when you can help to shape the lives of others, when you can see spiritual growth in other people. Uh, one of my favorite stories goes back to when I pastored, what was the name of the church? St. Philippi and me, which is outside of Columbia in a little rural area called Eastover, and had a guy to come and join the church, and obviously he had had some struggles and he was getting past him. 
And I asked him, what made you come forward? What made you join the church? And he said, well, there's this guy, and I can't call the guy's name, but he said, he and I used to do crack together. And you got him to join the church, and now he's singing on the choir. So I figured if he can do that, I can do that too. <laughs> so it can be rewarding. It can be rewarding. Is there a particular a hymn or a song that gets you going? Have you got a favorite? Uh, my Hope is Built, which is a nice traditional hymn. You go, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In Charleston, you go, my hope is built on extre extremely slow. Nothing, and the reason it's extremely slow is because it's then Jesus blood and a West African clap goes with it. I know one of our bishops, Bishop Norris, Richard Norris, when he was holding his first large meeting annual conference in the South Carolina conference, he said, I know I'm in South Carolina, but I swear this feels like Eliza Turner AME in Monrovia, Liberia, where he was presiding bishop before because the rhythms carry over, some of the culture carries over. And it can be wonderfully glorious worship down here. Have fun. So, didn't think I'd have fun in Charleston, but I've had fun in Charleston. Well, it sounds as though you have. Oh, yeah, I have. Pastor Darby's singing was so nice, we had to do it twice. Here's Pastor Darby to sing us out of today's episode with his favorite hymn. Oh, thou in whose presence my soul takes delight. On whom in affliction I call my comfort by day and my song in the night, my hope, my salvation, my all. If you broadcast that, that goes with apologies to anybody who had to listen to, listen to me sing. Oh, I thought that was wonderful. Thank you so much. What, what is it about that particular hymn? that you like? Uh, I like the words, I like the music, I particularly like the low country rhythm. Uh, and that's one of the things, if, we're, if it was a story about worship in the low country, there's still a very strong West African influence on worship in the low country, so. I'm Holly Kirkpatrick. Thanks for joining me for this special episode exploring Buffalo and Charleston, a parallel journey of hope, healing and reconciliation as we near the one-year anniversary of the Tops Massacre. I was part of the WBFO team that visited Charleston, South Carolina to examine what has and hasn't changed there since the racist attack at Mother Emanuel AME Church in 2015. Is there anything we in Buffalo can take away from Charleston's experiences in the eight years since the attack there? This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media. WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support.